This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 9th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. How does the blockchain regulate? What promise does it hold for conventional finance? And how are regulators attempting to control cryptocurrencies? At the Cato Institute City Seminar last month in San Francisco, I sat down with Cato's Matthew Feeney and Diego Zuluaga to discuss the future of blockchain and cryptocurrency. What are the big opportunities that blockchain technology uh, offers. Well, un- unless you follow uh, the you know the cryptocurrency space and, and blockchain technology on a daily basis, you probably come, have come across the term in the context of Bitcoin, which was the first cryptocurrency went live in January of 2009. And the great promise of Bitcoin was to create a payment system in which there was no central counterparty. There was no one regulating transactions, no one monitoring people, no one checking what was going on at every point in time, and also no one able to block access to the network. Blockchains are typically open access. Anyone can come in and anyone can potentially enter information into the ledger. And that makes it uh, a very useful tool to overcome some of the issues that we deal with at Cato all the time in terms of government stifling things, blocking access or placing mandates on uh, people. Now, Bitcoin is as I mentioned, focused on payments primarily, but there are plenty of applications uh, of blockchain technology across the board because ultimately it is about recording information and recording information in a way that is permanent, that is immutable, and that cannot easily be altered by a single person with ill intent. Yeah, I think uh, some of the most famous applications like Diego mentioned are uh, these cryptocurrencies that uh, sometimes, I suppose, compete with more traditional fiat currencies. But when it comes to things like... uh, Privacy, circumventing censorship, logistics, uh, so-called smart contracts. Uh, you can uh, leave it up to many innovators uh, to come up with lots and lots of applications, and fortunately they have. So what are, detail just a few of those that, uh, that you've seen. Uh, yeah, uh, I would mention a, a couple of highlights. One might be uh, Orchid, which is a, a blockchain project which aims to uh, compete with Tor, which is a, uh, a, a service uh, for anonymous browsing. The goal here is to be uh, a tool for anti-censorship, anti-surveillance. Uh, Civic, which is decentralized ID verification. Uh, you have a number of companies that are involved in the development and execution of uh, smart contracts, uh, but it's a, it's a vast and... Uh, I guess, a vibrant space at the moment. So to you then, Matthew, uh, with respect to cryptocurrencies as a thing that regulators want to regulate, because we all know regulators want to regulate, crypto was born out of a white paper. The network was built, uh, and then multiple other networks that were dramatically or substantially similar uh, were also built. So this technology existed. It was not based in permission. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. not, the government did not say, we hereby approve Bitcoin. Right. It just started. Yes. uh, Adam Thier at Mercatus has a great way of framing this kind of issue. He says technologies tend to either be born free or born captive. And uh, you think of some other emerging technologies like drones or driverless cars. They're decidedly born captive. Uh, The FAA regulates flying machines. Uh, There are tons of regulations on automobiles. But technologies like like Uber, cryptocurrencies, and I think arguably the internet as a whole were really born free. There was no department of cryptocurrencies when the white paper was published. Uh, And that, I think, has allowed for an amazing degree of experimentation. Uh, But uh, as Diego knows probably better than I do, there's been plenty of catch-up among regulators. Yes, indeed, and competition between regulators to see who can expand their remit the most. To, well, and uh, I want to get, I want to, I want to get into that a little bit because 
you know, whenever there's a new product or service that is, that is placed on the market, and Diego, you and I have talked about this a lot, is uh, that there's somebody that you can haul before a House committee or a Senate committee and say, we have some questions and concerns about what you're doing mm -hmm. with uh, cryptocurrencies, with adoption of blockchain technology. Uh, that isn't necessarily the case. There are people who use the network, but they don't control the network. Absolutely right. And, and indeed, the person who designed Bitcoin famously, Satoshi Nakamoto, is anonymous. No one knows who he or she is or whether it's a group of people or one person. And that's come to the benefit of the network because it's meant, first of all, that people can trust that no individual person will try to alter or use their cloud to try to alter the conditions of the network. But secondly, the government cannot easily persecute the designers. Now, that means that government liability cannot easily be placed on any one individual. They cannot shut down uh, the network. Uh, but it also means that we don't have an intermediary in the usual way. You know, ensuring, ensuring the transactions go through, um, having discretion over tra changing transactions, compensating people if things go wrong. And that is somewhat of a challenge in terms of adoption because people like to have an intermediary somewhere there for the reasons that we heard about, uh, among other things, on the previous, in the previous session, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Hernando de Soto, uh, recipient of the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty, the, the economist, you know, one of the concerns that he has long expressed is that there are people who are untitled. They've, their family may have worked a piece of land. Uh, you know, I think coffee was one of the sort of typical examples. Um, if they wanted to expand, if they wanted to develop, there's no piece of paper, there's no document that they can take to a bank and say, I would like a loan. Here are my, here are my papers. This is my collateral. <coughs> Give me a loan. And so that, that title is a very powerful thing for people who want to expand, for people who are entrepreneurial. Uh, so what is, the, what is the opportunity that blockchain technology has to, if not compel governments to hand out titles, at least to create a broad understanding that these are the pieces of land that are owned by these right. people and not these people. Yeah. Um, of course, a blockchain is, is an electronic ledger, so it couldn't make sure that some corrupt government official or policeman can come into your land and seize it from you actively, but at least it can permanently record who had title to that property before that event happened. And as Caleb was hinting, in a lot of jurisdictions, it's not so much about the government taking the land away. It's just that people living in particular plots have no formal title to it. And so blockchain gives us the opportunity to for the first time, relatively cheaply formalize that title. So it's mostly for private transactions that this would be useful, proving that you actually have collateral to get a loan and potentially to get redress if something goes wrong. And, you know, potentially if you don't pay your debts also, someone has the right to seize it from you. Building off that, I think one of the interesting applications that we might see more of is the use of this technology in humanitarian uh, contexts where... Uh, people living in countries that perhaps don't have the most stable governments decide to actually record transactions on, on a blockchain, which allows people all over the world to see, well, what's going on in this country? Who, who believes and who has agreed that they own what? Uh, this, this is uh, particularly important, I think, also in countries that aren't as, aren't as developed. I remember someone mentioning, I forget exactly who, that in the wake of the Haitian earthquake, that tons and tons of government records about land and title were, were destroyed. And it was very difficult to prove who owned what. And uh, you can imagine a situation uh, such as the, the end of the Syrian civil war. Uh, there will be 
tons and tons of disputes about who owned what before the conflict uh, and who, who should uh, move back into what property. And uh, that's an application I think we could see more of. You know, when, when Bitcoin launched, it was, I don't know, underground for a long time. And uh, the, the excitement that so many people expressed to me was about payments, 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 payments. This is going to be better than cash, that, that it's, it's secure. Uh, it's not anonymous, but it is a, a great way to, to build this system of payments. And all the, the uh, advocates for Bitcoin were trying to get uh, retailers to adopt Bitcoin. But now that is just not the exciting part, it seems. So why? And, and, and what is it? Well, I, th I think a number of things. First of all, Bitcoin is now very volatile. I mean, you know, the, the, the price peaked at about $17,000 uh, at the end of 2017, and it's now about 5000 So in terms of holding this or being an intermediary using Bitcoin, it becomes somewhat of a risky proposition uh, to do it. But I would say in addition to that, the, the promise of the technology in terms of recording information has just expanded. And it just meant that we can, we can, we, all the, the reason we have all these new cryptocurrencies emerging is because they are dedicated to a specific purpose. So Ethereum, which is the number two in terms of market capitalization now, it aims to be a world computer. What that means is that you would be able to create a computer program that would not run on a single set of servers, but would rather be run by a collective of independent, connected uh, computers all around the world. And it would be very difficult to shut that computer down. So that a lot of the activity that we currently have that might be vulnerable to hacking, might be vulnerable to government seizing the servers, uh, that would potentially become more difficult in this context. So I think part of it is just realizing that the um, gamut of applications for blockchain technology is much greater than just payments, although most of the experimentation so far is in payments. Some experiments that might be worth mentioning, though, are uh, attempts to build a truly anonymous cryptocurrency. Uh, Bitcoin is one of the most infuriating parts of being um, somewhat in the space are the, the headlines and stories that say the anonymous uh, cryptocurrency Bitcoin. It's not. And part of my worry is that actually some of the more um, government legitimizing of uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency more broadly is when more and more regulators and government officials realize that they can track everything. Uh, that it is a totally open uh, payment system. But uh, attempts at things like Monero and Zcash are examples of people trying to build truly uh, private cryptocurrencies. There is a push to uh, deplatform uh, people with certain views. There is also a push to unbank uh, a lot of groups that have uh, controversial views, whether or not we would agree that those are, those are acceptable uh, views or views that we want expressed in, in public. There is, uh, it seems, an opportunity for crypto, for blockchain, to provide opportunities for, let's say, socially, uh, social undesirables uh, to uh, take advantage of those kinds of services. Can you talk about what the, the sure. costs and benefits of, of that kind of availability? Of course, yeah. And I wouldn't even say social undesirables. You know, in my dealing in, in financial regulation, if you ask banks, the single most onerous regulation right now is the Bank Secrecy Act, which requires banks to report all manner of transactions in the accounts of the people who own for any kind of activity. Now, because national security is related, banks are very afraid of underreporting. So they do a lot of defensive reporting. Every time you get a foreign wire or you send money abroad, that immediately is flagged, simply because it goes to a different jurisdiction that U.S. government authorities don't have any direct control over. What that means is that if you're that type of customer that uses those services, banks may refuse to serve you because you're not, you're not profitable for them first, in the first place, but you may get them into trouble in the future. That is a highly regressive system because 
Uh, a lot of immigrants, minorities, low-income communities use these services. They tend to use cash more, and so they're more likely to fall under the net of the Bank Secrecy Act. And so what Bitcoin can do is it can provide a system under which you don't have to resort to that kind of entity. And because Bitcoin is not really strictly an intermediary, it doesn't really have to file Bank Secrecy Act reports. So it overcomes that major regulatory cost uh, involved in doing the business of intermediating fund transfers. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, uh, Matthew, that uh, after the Haitian earthquake, yes, yeah. uh, you know, that a lot of records were lost. It seems almost... Uh, uh, you know, but at least a worthy avenue of exploring the idea that, well, we don't, why do we need the government to keep these kinds of records? Well, right. This is, this is the great libertarian dream, right? That we could just uh, have a way of, of uh, the technology is a great way to circumvent a lot of uh, activities or regulations that we've used to think that only government can do. And, and the great innovation is uh, the, the ability to get rid of, of third parties for validation and, and trust that actually the network and uh, complicated uh, cryptographic math can do the heavy lift there. And that's, uh, that's very valuable. But it doesn't mean that the government uh, isn't trying to, to catch up. And I had the great experience of last year, I think it was, uh, you know, trying to be a good citizen and to file my taxes. And I went into a company that will remain unnamed uh, and, you know, talking to an accountant and my taxes aren't that complicated. And I said, oh, you should know that I did buy and I did trade a bit of this stuff called cryptocurrencies. I remember this person, you know, turning and having to Google what the IRS guidance of this was. And it was sort of incredible to then have the, that Q&A session because they're struggling with this. And, uh, and, 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 it's, and it's an obstacle to using Bitcoin to buy things because mm-hmm. the way the regime now works is the IRS treats cryptocurrency as property. Mm-hmm. Every time you exchange it, you have to record a capital gain or a loss, which you then have to file for taxes. And it means that you potentially incur a major tax event if you try to use this for what it was meant to be used, which is to mm-hmm. buy goods and services um, on, the, on the market. Um, now, funnily enough, and despite the volatility of cryptocurrencies, there's no exemption right now on how much of a capital gain you can have without having to report it to the IRS. So um, the IRS is in some way, you know, really hindering and potentially increasing the volatility of this stuff uh, by, by its policy. It's really not a very smart system. Okay. Well, I was, and I was going to ask about that. Different federal agencies, if I recall correctly, they, different federal agencies treat crypto differently. Mm-hmm. And, and where are the conflicts? Well, every regulator seems to think that it falls under the purview. So the Securities and Exchange Commission says uh, cryptocurrencies or most cryptocurrencies are securities. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission says they're commodities. The IRS says they're property. And then FinCEN says it's currency because it's currency that you have to report to FinCEN, which is the crime enforcement network of the Treasury. Every regulator says this is something we have to deal with. Um, The argument I have made in terms of regulation is saying, look, because these instruments, these tokens, are under the property or under the control of nobody, they're decentralized. They don't really meet the regular definition of a security. So let's treat them like commodities, like gold. They're in fixed supply as well. Um, And let's say that if you create a new one, if you're raising money to try and create a new program that results in one of these new instruments, that can be a securities contract, but only if someone genuinely has control over the whole mm-hmm. thing so that you allow, you, you, you liberate some of that uh, space for, for people to be able to use these things without having to register as if they were engaging in an IPO. All right. I want to make uh, one note here before we go to questions. Is that right? Okay. Uh, Diego, you have a chapter that has been made available to everyone here in uh, a book, Visions of Liberty. And uh, it argues that the wide adoption of blockchain technology means intermediaries. 
uh, in, a, in a very obvious example, we would think of Coinbase mm -hmm. as an intermediary, a, a provider of services that is attached to the network, that they have experts, so we don't have to be experts in uh, crypto. So and you also warn a bit that governments could co-opt mm -hmm. the technology essentially by, shall we say, leaning on inter intermediaries. That's a nice service you got there. Be a shame if something happened to it. So what is the, you know, what is the, the role of intermediaries with respect to crypto? And I guess what, what's the risk that uh, regulators will use a heavy hand? So when looking at the crypto space, a lot of people compare it to the early days of the Internet. And at the time, uh, you know, it was thought that this would be a completely open, very individual focused, very, very decentralized kind of environment. And to some extent, we still have that. But we also have very large intermediaries that have facilitated a lot of our interactions with the Internet and indeed made it possible for us to do so many more things than we can do 25 years ago on these things. And I expect that will happen, too, in cryptocurrencies, if nothing else, because adoption otherwise won't happen. People like convenience. They like low cost. And those are two things that cryptocurrencies currently don't have. So yes, for us libertarians, being able to deal on our own in these networks and having the privacy that comes with it is very important. But I think for the general public, other factors are going to be uh, important as well. Matthew Feeney is the director of Cato's project on emerging technologies. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Learn how you can attend future Cato events in your area by joining one of our many mailing lists or contacting our development department. And follow this podcast on Twitter at Cato Podcast.